Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. NetHealth Therapy for Private Practice is a cloud-based, all-in-one EMR solution for managing your practice. That's right, one piece of software that handles all of your scheduling, documentation, billing, and reporting needs, plus a lot more in one super easy-to-use package. Right now, NetHealth is offering a special deal for healthy, wealthy, and smart listeners. Complete a demo with the NetHealth team and get $100 towards lunch for your staff. Visit nethealth.com slash litzy to get started and get access to free resources for PTs like ebooks, on-demand webinars, and business tools. Once again, that's nethealth.com slash L-I-T-Z-Y. My last name, very, very easy. Now, on to today's episode. So what we're doing with the podcast this month and really every month going forward is we're going to have several guests that are all going to talk about one topic in various forms. This month, our topic is ACL injury and rehabilitation. And my first guest is not only an incredible physical therapist, a great researcher, but also a great friend of mine. That is Dr. Amelia Arendale, or Amy Arendale. So Amy is a physical therapist and researcher, originally from Fairbanks, Alaska. She received her bachelor's degree with honors from Haverford College, gaining both soccer playing and coaching experience throughout college. She spent a year as the William Penn Fellow and head of women's football at the Chigwell School in London. Amy completed her DPT at Duke University and throughout gained experience working at multiple soccer clubs in the U.S. and Norway. Amy applied this experience working at Balanced Physical Therapy, providing physical therapy for the Capital Area Soccer Club, now North Carolina FC Youth, and the U23 Carolina Railhawks. In 2013, Amy moved to Newark, Delaware to pursue a Ph.D. under Dr. Lynn Snyder-Mackler. Amy's dissertation examined primary and secondary ACL injury prevention, as well as career length and return to performance in soccer players. After a short postdoc in Linköping, Sweden in 2017, Amy joined the Brooklyn Nets as a physical therapist and biomechanist, as well as the Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Health System as a visiting scientist. Currently, Amy is transitioning to a new role as a physical therapist at Red Bull's Athletic Performance Center in Austria. Outside of work, Amy plays Australian rules football for both the New York Magpies and U.S. national team. She has also been involved in the APTA and the AASPT, which is the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy, including serving as director of APTA Student Assembly, a member of the APTA's Leadership Development Committee, chair of the AASP's Membership Committee, and currently as a member of the AASPT Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So what do we talk about today? All about ACLs, right? So we talk about injury prevention and risk mitigation programs, how they work, what the pros and cons are, uh, how collaboration is so necessary amongst all stakeholders and why, exciting new research that includes motor learning principles, creative thinking, and problem solving, and are there gaps in the literature, and what can we as clinicians 
and as researchers do about those gaps in the research. Now, the other thing Amy has so generously done for our listeners is she is going to give away one copy of Basketball, Sports, Medicine, and Science. This is a book that she was involved in as an editor, and it is over 1,000 pages. The book is massive. It's huge. And she's going to give a copy away to one lucky listener. So how do you win that copy? All you have to do is go to my Instagram page. My handle is at Karen Litzy, and you will find out how to win a copy of Basketball, Sports, Medicine, and Science. Again, that's go to my Instagram page at Karen Litzy, and we will give this book away to one lucky listener at the end of the month of February. So you have the whole month to sign up for this. So a huge thanks to Amy and everyone. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. So this month, we're going to be examining ACL injuries and ACL rehab. And my first guest this month to help take us through the ACL maze is Dr. Amy Arendale. So Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm starting off at the beginning of the year with the A's. With the A- Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yes. <clears throat> and But then next month we go right to running and just skip everything else in between. You know, that's fine. Excellent. So Amy, before we get into sort of the meat of the episode, what I would love for you to do is tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, some of your more current research projects, things like that. So I will hand it over to you. Sure. So I'm just finishing up as a physical therapist and biomechanist at the Brooklyn Nets. Um, So I've been working clinically with them and then doing a little bit of kind of in-house research um, as well. And then on the side, I have been working on a few different projects. Um, The biggest one right now is starting the revisions for the knee and ACL injury prevention Uh, or knee injury prevention clinical practice guidelines. Uh, So those were originally published in JOSPT in 2018. um, And clinical practice guidelines get revised every three years. So 2021, we're due for we're due for a revision. So that's my the biggest project I've got uh, going right now. Um, A few other things working with the United States, uh, Australian Rules Football League on some injury surveillance and injury prevention, particularly on the women's side. And I'm getting ready to move to Austria to uh, begin working for Red Bull, uh, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, amazing, amazing. They all sound really uh, like really great projects. And since you brought up injury prevention, let's dive into that first. So there are a lot of injury prevention programs. So can you talk a little bit about those programs uh, in general, and then talk about really what is, what's really key for injury prevention in our athletes when it comes to those programs? Absolutely. So there's a range of different programs that have all uh, been published on, uh, and some of them are probably a little better known than others. Uh, the FIFA 11 plus, or what's now known as just the 11 plus, maybe the, one of the most notable, uh, it actually came out of a program that was called the PEP program. So the 11 plus was kind of aimed at soccer players, although has been tested in other athletes. 
Um, and it's considered, it's kind of a dynamic warm-up. So it has some dynamic stretching, some running, some strengthening, neuromuscular control, some balance exercises within it. And most of the programs that we see that have been researched are similar, They're kind of dynamic warm-ups and include a variety of different things that help athletes kind of get warmed up. So some of the other ones uh, that have been published on um, include the knock control or knee control program coming out of Sweden, uh, Greta Microburst, um, and the um, ACL prevention in um, <clears throat> Norwegian handball um, has had some great success and great literature. Um, there's the Harmony program. Uh, and then the sports metrics program is a little bit different. Um, it's actually a... Um, program that was designed to be kind of uh, in and of itself. So it's a three times a week, 90 minute pro program, primarily plyometric based. So it's a little bit different from the other programs, but has also been successful. So we've got a number of these programs that we've seen to reduce knee and ACL injuries um, <clears throat> in particular. And most of them actually have been quite successful at reducing just injuries as a whole. Uh, but the key components that we see in particular being important for ACL and knee injuries are that these programs have a strength component. So they're building strength, particularly in the hips, the quads, the hamstrings, but also in the core. So kind of proximal in, like, in terms of like hip and core strengthening being important. Plyometric component seems to be important. Um, to some extent, a balance component may be important, although that's kind of questionable as to like how important that is. And that's one of the things that we still need more literature on is how do these components interact and influence each other? Because we seem to know what we think is important, but how much and how those different components interact, we still don't know as much about. And when we're talking about these programs, I would imagine some of the most difficult aspects of them, especially if we're looking at a younger population, so your high school, even collegiate athletes, is doing them. <laughs> yep. So can you talk a little bit about implementation and compliance with these programs and how to instill that into these players and teams. Yeah, I think, you know, we've got, like you said, we've got great information. We know these programs can work, but for them to work, you have to do them. And, and that implementation piece, you know, whether that be in clinical research, um, you know, we talk about that gap between research and clinical practice. We really see that here in ACL injury prevention. And part of that also is it's not just physios. Um, in implementing, we're, we've got a whole range of stakeholders, whether those be the athletes themselves, to coaches who are often running training sessions, to parents who really have to kind of be bought in, to teams and clubs as a whole. Because if you have a culture that kind of instills the importance of doing prevention program, then it's going to kind of, it may benefit in kind of trickling down. And that's also wider culture as well. Social media, seeing pro teams do it. There's all sorts of layers to this, but 
what I think implementation really takes is identifying with that athlete or that team, what's, what are our barriers? What's important? What do we feel is, is most important? What's not as important? And then coming up together kind of, kind of with a collaborative strategy to overcome what are those barriers? So we know information and knowledge, kind of that buy-in is important. What the why? Why are mm -hmm. we doing this in the first place? Uh, but then there's also some of the actual um, practical pieces of your athlete might not want to do an exercise lying down in the grass because that grass might be wet. Mm -hmm. They're going to be wet for the rest of their training session, wet and cold for the rest of their training session. So <clears throat> I think it has to be a really collaborative effort. And each in each situation, that solution may look a little bit different. We've got some really kind of interesting information coming out. For example, the 11 plus has now a couple of studies on breaking it, it apart. So taking some of the pieces, for example, taking the strengthening pieces and putting them at the end of training sessions. So coaches often complain that, you know, these injury prevention programs take too long. And when you've only got the field for an hour, they don't want to give up 20 minutes of their training session to do this program. So now let's take, maybe we can take this strength piece out. That means all right, so maybe it's 10 minutes warming up at the beginning. That's probably a little easier for a, a coach to swallow. Then as we're cooling down, maybe we're off the pitch. We get everybody together. We finish those strengthening components. So we're still getting the entire prevention program done with that training session, but it's split up. And so thinking creatively like that are some of the ways that I think we can do a lot better in our implementation rather than just saying, do this, here you go. Why aren't, and then coming back and saying, well, why aren't you doing it? Right. Right. Oh, that's, that is really interesting that, um, and what is, does the research show that splitting it up is still as effective? Yeah. From what we know thus far, it does seem to be as effective. Um, I think there's some other projects that are starting to look at, can you actually do that strengthening piece at home? Now there's other pieces that, you know, compliance at home, remembering, doing those exercises the right way that could come into play there. But as of right now, what it seems like is splitting it up does seem, seem to be splitting it up at least within a training session does seem to be as effective. Excellent. And so aside from time, and uh, constraints on, um, like you said, wet grass, things like that. What are some other common barriers that you have seen um, or that the research has shown to be a barrier to doing any of these, the above mentioned um, prevention programs? Yeah, I think coaching education is a really big one. So whether there's a few studies in Germany that we're just looking at uh, coaches' awareness of the 11 plus. And for a, a program that's kind of sponsored by FIFA, you know, it's promoted as kind of the soccer warm up. You would think that coaches would be kind of aware of it. And it's, it's very quite, it's actually quite surprising how few coaches are, are aware of it. Part of that is it's not in their coaching education. So at least in soccer, as coaches move up with kind of within the ranks and, and in higher level teams, they've got to complete licenses 
just like you have to complete a license to be a, a physio and complete continuing education in soccer coaches do too getting that program into that coaching education i think is a really important piece but then it, there's also the piece of helping them understand again coming back to that why you know yeah you want your players to be available you don't want your players injured and that's not just a, a, an immediate fact but helping them understand the long-term implications especially of something like an ACL injury. This is not an injury that's just going to mean you don't have this athlete for a year. This is something that's going to affect how they play long-term. It's going to affect their knee long-term. It could affect their career. So this has long-term implications. Buy-in also can come from kind of some of the performance effects. The stronger, faster, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah, more totally. talented athlete, that's that there are some of those performance effects coming um, potentially from performing some of these uh, injury prevention programs or injury prevention or injury risk mitigation programs um, that can help buy-in. And then if we just look at, we'll cut straight to the chase is coaches wanna win oftentimes and money. <laughs> if you've got more players available, we know more players available equals a more successful team. And even uh, Holly Silver is actually in some of her dissertation work looked straight at the more you do the 11 plus, the more successful uh, the NCAA uh, Division One men's team was. Um, so there's there's a she she actually was able to draw a, a connection between doing the FIFA 11 plus and winning. That those are the types of things that oftentimes coaches will latch onto and say, yeah, uh, I want to win or clubs will say, yeah, we want to win. We want to be, do that thing that makes us that, that next level that makes us better um, at the higher levels that keeps us earning money. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So from, from what it sounds like is to get these programs implemented is you need a lot of collaboration from everyone, from all the stakeholders, mm -hmm. whether it be the coaches, the trainers, the physios, the players, the owners, when we're talking about big league teams and, and with our younger, our younger subset of athletes, parents, coaches, and the kids themselves. Yep. And, and I, I guess communicating the value of these programs depends on who you're talking to, which is why if you're the physio communicating the program, you really have to have a different set of communication uh, bullet points, if you will, if you will, for each person on the within that team, because you're going to yeah. talk differently to a parent than you are to a, a, an owner of a team or you're going to talk differently to a coach than the player or the parent. So really knowing how to, how to um, talk to those stakeholders is key. And I think everything you just said will kind of help people understand how to have those different conversations with different people. Yeah. And I think there's all the other piece that some of those conversations is really empowering them. So there's the education piece and helping them understand, but there's also the empowerment piece that, you may be a physio and you may have this injury prevention knowledge, but you don't have to be there for this to happen. Um, it's just as effective uh, for you to run this program as it is for a coach or a parent to run it. Um, and we have, there's some good data um, on that, that coaches can run really effective 
um, injury prevention programs. And so helping them kind of take on that role and say, yeah, no, I, I feel confident in taking my players through this. I feel confident in knowing why we're doing this. There, I think that's the second piece too, is that kind of empowerment piece. And maybe it's a player, maybe it's a captain um, that, that needs that education or that kind of empowerment as well. I think the generation of players that's growing up now is going to be very different from the generation of players say that you and I played, mm -hmm. played with. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't understand or really have much of this. Um, whereas yeah. I think there's some really, there's some um, kids growing up now who are growing up with some amazing knowledge. Um, and I think also coming with it, hopefully some better strength, some more, more neuromuscular control <laughs> than maybe we had coming through puberty as well. So uh, yeah. I think it's exciting to kind of see where this next generation is going to be, because I think we're going to have some athletes that are uh, just like that, more empowered to know more about their body, um, maybe have a little bit more control, um, maybe even coming with also potentially better talent. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> TBD to be yeah. determined. So you mentioned a little bit about motor learning. So let's dive into that a little bit um, because there is new research that includes motor learning, problem solving, uh, creative thinking. So what exactly does that mean in relationship to ACL injury? And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we will be right back. NetHealth Therapy for Private Practice is a cloud-based, all-in-one EMR solution for managing your practice. That's right, one piece of software that handles all of your scheduling, documentation, billing, and reporting needs, plus lots more, in one super easy-to-use package. Right now, NetHealth is offering a special deal for healthy, wealthy, and smart listeners. Complete a demo with the NetHealth team and get $100 towards lunch for your staff. Visit nethealth.com slash litzy to get started and get access to free resources for PTs like ebooks, on-demand webinars, and business tools. Once again, that's nethealth.com slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Yeah, so I think it's a really exciting area, and I think we're really um, just kind of tipping a little bit of the iceberg. People are starting to pay attention to... Uh, some of the work that's coming out. And I, I think it's, it is really exciting. In the kind of prevention realm, um, what we're seeing is people kind of pointing out that the programs that we have, ha we know we kind of have some principles of motor learning, but the programs in injury prevention that we have haven't really paid much attention to them. So at a very basic level, um, one of the things that has been talked about from a motor learning perspective for a while now is internal versus external cues. So we know that giving an external cue, giving an outcome-focused cue to an athlete is going to help them keep that motion kind of more automatic. They're not going to be thinking about like, I need my hip in line with my knee, in line with my toe and my foot, my knee can't go too far over my shoelaces. I need to sit back. That's a lot to think about. Yeah. You can't play a sport while you're thinking about all those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. Um, so we, if that, if that cue is external or is outcome-based, 
suddenly that athlete's much, much more, be- much better able to pay attention to the soccer ball that's flying past them or getting ready to, to bat. And can you, let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just so people have a better idea of what an internal versus an external cue is, can you give an example of, let's say a situation, we'll use soccer as the example and give an internal cue and then give an external cue so that people can differentiate. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, maybe, maybe we'll do, um, say we're doing like a single leg squat, similar to what I, what I just said. Um, so an internal cue might be, I want you to keep your hip, your knee and your foot all in one straight line. That external cue, uh, might be giving them a, uh, let's say a pole that's lined up in front of them. And you might not even tell them what they're, what, what's going on. Maybe you've got a pole in front of a mirror. So that's poles running vertically. And they're there, they're, we, we just set them up so that their foot's in front of that pole and they're doing that single leg squat. So now you've got a visual line in front of them. You're paying it, their, their attention is going to be on that visual line as they're doing that single leg squat. Suddenly you see they they see that like if their hips pretty far, you know, adducted or their knees collapsing in, you've got a line. You can say, focus on that line. I mean, focus on that line. Got it. That line it. It isn't their body. Um, other cues may be like giving analogies. Uh, I want you to think of your body as a column or um, that's, that's not a brilliant one, uh, but you know, things like that. So analogies um, are helpful for external cues. Uh, they're also, I, we'll get in, I'll get into that in a, in a sec. Uh, Cause they're actually another. Go, ahead, piece get, of, go get into it, get into it. Don't so analogies know. also bring in another piece of motor learning, which is called implicit learning. Um, again, kind of having that internal picture of what a motion should like should look or what that motion should feel like um, is implicit learning. So you've got external and internal, external and internal cues, but you've also then got kind of implicit learning. So a great example of implicit learning is when you ask, you know, a really gifted athlete to explain what they do on the court or on the pitch. And a lot of times they can't put words to what they do. And that's that's kind of a good example of maybe implicit learning is they've got, they, there's no rules set to that learning. There's no order. It's just, I've got this internal knowledge, internal picture, internal kind of motor memory of what, what that is. And I just execute that. I don't think about it. And so with those, all of my attention can stay to the game. I'm not thinking about how I'm moving. It's just, just kind of to, to the game. So pulling those back to prevention, our kind of injury prevention programs have said, here's a video or here's a picture. This is good. This is bad. Or they've given kind of implicit um, or internal cues. So those internal cues are those keep your knee, your hip, uh, and your foot all in one straight line. Where we may benefit and where we might be able to bolster some of those programs is by adding some of these these motor learning pieces at the very basic level adding external cues 
maybe adding um, some analogies or some implicit learning. Another, another way you can facilitate implicit learning is through dual tasking. Um, one of my favorite things reading through some of the literature is in studying uh, implicit learning, um, <clears throat> a few authors have uh, taken novice, novice golfers and these novice golfers have, have to go and putt. And while they're putting, they basically have to yell letters. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're literally just be out there like trying to learn to putt you don't know how to putt you may not even get any directions but you're just out there kind of yelling some letters because if you have to generate letters you can't be entirely focused on that putting so there's that aspect actually of having two tasks going on at once that means not all your attention can be on one of those tasks and um, how does that help with, how does that help the movement and yeah, so so that's a, that's a very good question. Um, it, what it means is as you're learning it, it's a harder. <laughs> but once you get to that kind of point where you're comfortable, you're able to execute that movement, it's an automatic movement. It's unconscious, it's automatic. And when we put that in the context of sport, that means that movement is happening without the athlete thinking about it and their attention remains, uh, remains elsewhere. Their attention can remain on the game that's going on, the ball that's flying at them. Um, you know, that random thing that just flew by them that wasn't the ball and wasn't, you know, part of the game, but could be that perturbation that in another situation could be distracting enough and could lead to an injurious situation potentially. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Like, and you and I have had this conversation before because I have a young athlete and we're doing, trying to do, uh, incorporate some of this stuff. So one of the things we're doing is I'm having her, uh, do some unpredictability drills with clock yourself, but we're trying to do them in Spanish. So she has to say things in Spanish as she's doing them so that she's a little, do, so she's accomplishing this kind of dual tasking. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I will also say it's fun. It's fun for the patient. It's fun for the therapist. And they kind of understand while they're why they're doing those things. And then every once in a yeah. while, I'll just like throw a ball at her. Yeah. And see yeah. what happens. And you put this in the context then of some of those injury prevention programs and, and coach buy-in. So let's put volleys in with single leg squats. Let's mm. put um, you know, squats and you jump into a header. Um, there's already a little bit of some of that in, um, some of the programs, but the more we can get that ball, some of those technical skills involved, mix them potentially in with, um, some of the movements that we're working on, maybe that might help, um, with some of these, this kind of adding in some of this motor learning piece. Now I say all of this, none of this has been tested yet <laughs> to change any of these programs. We're really doing, or to kind of, we need to go back and test them. And so, you know, this is, or I, I say this, but it is kind of hypothetical, but in thinking about it as well, as we're kind of trying to overcome some of those barriers, that 10 minutes that maybe we're at 10 to 15 minutes where we're trying to convince a coach to do something 
coaches are going to buy in a lot more if there's a, if they can build some skills into that, Mm -hmm. or if they can see the sport reflected in it, rather than it just being kind of this abstract quote unquote injury prevention program. Mm -hmm. So can we get some of this dual tasking? Can we get some of this kind of real world kind of environment um, type demands and challenges integrated in with some of those pieces uh, that we're trying to build from a neuromuscular standpoint? Can we mix them all together and end up with a maybe potentially more beneficial um, outcome? Yeah. And, you know, as you're saying all of this, it's kind of opening my mind up into these programs as being these living, breathing programs that aren't set in stone and that have the ability to change and morph over time as research uh, continues to evolve. And I think that's really exciting for these programs as well, because you don't want to have these programs be thought of as stale because Mm -hmm. then that's going to not help with your buy-in. Yep. Yeah. And that's one of the complaints that you sometimes see about some of these programs is, all right, so my team's done them for a season. They've all mastered, you know, all Mm -hmm. my players have mastered this program. They're bored of it. Now, the likelihood that every single one of your players has mastered every single one of those exercises is that we'll put that into question, but we'll put that one on the side. But yeah, if you're doing the exact same program, the exact same exercise, every single training session for multiple years, yeah, your players are going to get bored of it. And so are these some of the opportunities where we kind of help with that buy-in, where we make it a little bit more creative, where we help kind of with some of those implementation pieces um, to to make it more interesting, to make it more long-term and to, to really help with, you know, people wanting to do them. Yeah, I think it's great. (laughs) And now we're, we've spoken a little bit about research here and there. So let's talk about um, any gaps in the research. So, I mean, of, are, are there gaps in the research? I feel like, of course. <laughs> but are these gaps something that can't be overcome? No, all of the gaps that um, at least I've, I'm aware of, and I'm sure there are more. Um, I just... Uh, finished uh, writing a paper alongside Holly and, and Greta Mark. Uh, so Holly Silvers and, and Greta Michaelbust um, for the Journal of Orthopedic Research. And, and one of the things um, that we did was kind of go through the literature and identify some of the gaps. What were, what the were things- they? You don't yeah, have to so- say all of them. Just give a couple. <laughs> Just a so, couple. A couple of the big ones in your A couple of the big ones is a lot of our literature is focused on women, which is important, mm-hmm. but in total numbers, we still have more ACLs happening in men. So we need more research in men. A lot of our research is in soccer and handball. Uh, There's a lot of other high-risk sports out there. Um, So we're focused kind of on team sports, uh, but there is some pretty high-risk team sports, something like netball. um, Volleyball. Volleyball have very high um, ACL injury um, numbers individual sports, uh, things like gymnastics and wrestling. Um, and those are also tough sports to come back to. They're very high impact or they're very, they've got some crazy positions that you don't see in, mm-hmm. in sports. So individual sports, I think have quite lacked outside of skiing. Skiing's got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest ones, uh, that I think for me is really important, um, is we don't have good reporting of the subjects and the diversity um, 
within the research that we've done. So most of the, the research that's been done has been done in the US, some in Canada and in Scandinavia, or at least in, in Europe as a whole. There's been a few studies um, that have been in, um, in Africa, but we, even within the studies that we have in the US and Europe, uh, and Australia, we don't, none of that, them have reported um, any of the, like really the, the, the race or ethnicity of the athletes who were part of them. So those may have implications. And Tracy Blake uh, did an amazing uh, BJSM uh, blog that was kind of a call to action for researchers. And it's one that, that I'd love to echo here um, that uh, we need to be better at reporting our biases, um, looking at our, our subject populations um, and funding and encouraging studies outside of kind of, we'll call it quote unquote, the global north. I think that's, that's a big gap that we need to fill and we need to be more aware of. Excellent. And on that note, we are gonna wrap things up. But <laughs> what I would like you to do is uh, number one, is there anything that we didn't cover or anything uh, more that you want to add to any of the subjects we covered? Ooh, I know you always ask this question and I always am never prepared for it. <laughs> I be, Well, you know, because I don't want to like skirt over something and then the guest at the end is like, damn, I really wanted to say this and she just ended the interview. I'm going to think of it probably right before I go to bed. Probably, I, I can't think of anything right now. Okay, excellent, excellent. Just for any readers who haven't read Dr. Tracy Blake's BJSM post, definitely go check it out. We'll put the link in. Yeah, yeah, we'll put the link into the show notes here so you can uh, read her blog at, over at BJSM. And I agree, it was uh, it was very well written and it was a really nice call to action and or uh, call to awareness. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? Maybe not call to action, but certainly a call to awareness, which is step one mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. sequence of actionable moves. Definitely. Definitely. So, yes, she's a gem. Um, <laughs> so now, uh, before we wrap things up, uh, I'll ask the same question to you that I asked to everyone. And knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad? Let's say like not new grad, PhD grad, but new grad, Duke grad. New, new grad coming out of Duke PT school. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of what I said the last time I was on. Well, don't say it again. No, I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, that's what I'm worried about saying the same thing again. I think That's what okay. I said last time, but what is my like big thing is being more gentle on myself. Mm. I, when I came out of PT school, I um, started work. I was the first uh, new hire, new grad that they'd hired. Um, and so I was working alongside some just phenomenal clinicians, but they'd uh, uh, the least experienced one had like 15 years of experience. And I came out of school and expected myself to kind of treat and uh, operate on the kind of the same experience level that they did. And I, it's just not possible. So I, I've spent a lot of time kind of beating myself up. And so it takes a lot of reminding even now that like, I still have, you know, I've graduated in 2011. So um, I'm coming out up on 11 years of experience and that's still not a lot in a lot of ways. So being gentle on myself that I don't have to come up with 
you know, everything on the spot you know, that I don't, um, don't necessarily have the experience to know or have seen everything um, or every course of, or development. And so um, being okay with that and being gentle and allowing myself to be, to, to just be where I'm at is, is I think. It's wonderful advice. And just think if you thought you did know everything, I mean, how boring, number yeah. one. And number yeah. two, you'd never move on. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you kind of, you'd be pretty stuck. You'd be pretty stuck. So giving yourself the space and the kindness to say, Hey, I don't know everything. So I'm going to make it a point to learn more is just good therapy. <laughs> it's just being a good PT, yeah. being a good yeah. physio, you yeah. know, otherwise you're just stuck in 2011. I mean, God, yeah, 11 a, wasn't bad, but I, I'm glad I'm not stuck there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what a bore, right? You'd be like so boring as a PT because you would never advance. Yeah. So yeah. Ex excellent advice. And now where can people find you on social media and elsewhere? So I am on Twitter at, at soccer PT 11. Uh, I'm on Instagram at squeaky Edgar. Uh, I will note that's actually more personal, uh, but follow me anywhere. Cause you'll get some great, great adventures. Yes. <laughs> um, and those are my primary uh, social media outlets. Excellent. And before we hop off, can you talk quickly about be uh, basketball, sports, medicine, and science? Oh yeah. I forgot to talk about that in my projects. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this quickly. Yes. Yeah, so I uh, was uh, honored to be a part of an editorial group um, that just uh, completed. I just got a book out. Um, it's an ESCA pub publication on basketball, sports, medicine, uh, and rehabilitation. Um, so it's quite the book. Uh, but I say that because it is <laughs> over, over 1100 pages, if Ooh. I remember correctly. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a chunk of a book. Uh, but we are, I've got an extra copy of it. So one of our lucky oh. visitors will okay. actually uh, be getting the copy. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun. And everyone else, thank you for listening. Have a great couple, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A big thank you to Dr. Amy Arendale for coming on the podcast today. And of course, a big thank you to NetHealth. Again, they have created NetHealth for private NetHealth therapy for private practice, which is a cloud-based all-in-one EMR solution for managing your practice. One piece of software that handles scheduling, documentation, billing, reporting needs, plus a lot more. If you want to check it out, there's a special deal for healthy, wealthy, and smart listeners. Complete a demo with the NetHealth team and get $100 toward lunch for your staff. Visit nethealth.com slash litzy to get started. Again, that's nethealth.com slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.